Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer contains only 38 words. It's rather significant that probably the most wonderful prayer that's ever been offered is about a minute long. <laughs> it's a great uh, model of brevity and a great uh, model of uh, inclusiveness, and it's the model by which our Lord has directed us to pray. We do not know this unnamed disciple, but in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we read these words, and it came about that while he, that is Jesus, was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. May God add his blessing to this reading from his word. Our Lord Jesus prayed his baptism. He prayed in the wilderness when he was confronted by Satan. He prayed before he called his twelve apostles. He prayed before he fed the five thousand. He prayed at Caesarea Philippi when he revealed himself as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He prayed before he raised Lazarus from the dead. He prayed on the mountain of transfiguration when he discussed with Moses and Elijah the exodus, the great exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem, which would mean his death for our sins and our exodus out of the bondage of sin who have trusted in him as our Redeemer. And he also was praying in this certain place when some unnamed disciple of his heard something new and revolutionary and different about his prayer, something so refreshing that he wanted desperately for the Lord to teach him to pray. And he came with that quest, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. This indicates that the great forerunner of our Lord, John the Baptist, had taught his disciples perhaps a series of prayers. There are many Bible scholars who believe that those great songs of faith which are recorded in the Gospel according to Luke, the Magnificat which Mary sings, the Benedictus, the uh, Nunc Dimittis which old Simeon sings in the temple, that these may have been some forms of prayers which the John the Baptist community uh, would have been praying. We know that rabbis taught their disciples to pray. They had 18 prayers a day that they were to say, 18 separate and individual prayers. And so, here comes one of Jesus' disciples asking him to teach them a prayer to say. This is the only prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray. What is called the Lord's Prayer properly should be that which is in the 17th chapter of John when he prays before he goes to the cross, that great 
high priestly prayer of his. And you remember he also prays from the cross and he also prays with the disciples at Emmaus and he prays before his ascension. And he is even right now at the right hand of God praying for the people sitting in Gaither Chapel in the Montreat Church, praying that we'll understand something of the meaning of prayer, praying that we'll want to pray more too. I wonder what it was that caught this disciple's attention. Perhaps it was something of the intimacy of the prayer for our Lord Jesus with stark simplicity refers to God as Father. It is my understanding that this occurs only five times in the Old Testament where God is referred to in just those words. It would seem almost an affront to a first century Jew to be so personal in this way. You know, we often call people uh, in very formal ways and some people consider it an affront if you call them by their given name or uh, if you do not defer with proper respect. Well, the Jews of Jesus' time considered it a great offense not to keep the name of God very, very holy. And the high priest would only utter the great Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, one time a year when he went into the temple on the Day of Atonement, he would then use that name. And here, in almost shocking and offensive to some people personal way, Jesus simply says, Father, and he teaches us to pray that way. Why can we pray that way? Not all men can because they have not yet been redeemed or regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is essential for us to come into that sacred relationship with God whereby we are adopted into his family and we come to him in this family prayer. Our catechism asks wisely the question, what is prayer? And the answer comes back, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. And then we're given this question, what rule has God given us to direct us in prayer? And the rule that he has given us is the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now then, that's the Westminster Shorter Catechism's statement about prayer. And all of you know that I am a great admirer of Martin Luther. One of the reasons that I like Martin Luther is that he is so absolutely earthy. He is so blunt and straightforward and direct. And oh my, you can see why a Reformation came <laughs> when, when Luther starts up. Luther puts in his little catechism for small children. These must have been mighty smart children is all I can say. Uh, 
what is prayer? And he says, prayer is an act of worship wherein we bring our petitions before God with our hearts and lips and offer up praise and thanksgiving to him. And then Luther cites scripture, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. When ye pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear. I really believe one reason Luther was so great in writing his catechism is that they didn't have all these theological books to read then. They just about had the Bible. The printing press hadn't been invented very long. And uh, nowadays, the seminary students run down to the bookstore to see what they can believe for the coming week. And, uh, <laughs> and when <laughs> they were anchored into the Bible, it made a lot of difference. To whom should we pray? We should pray only to the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, since to him alone such honor is due, and he alone is able and willing to hear and to grant our prayer. And then he cites many scriptures. What should move us to pray? That is, why should we pray? God commanded us to pray, said Luther. He promises us great and mighty things. Our own and our neighbor's need should prompt us to prayer and our own gratitude for the blessings which we have received. These should move us to pray. What should we ask of God in our prayers? We should ask for everything that tends to the glory of God and to our own and our neighbor's welfare, both spiritual and bodily blessings. What distinction should we make in our prayer? When praying for spiritual blessings, listen. You get this, and if you want it, I'll give you a copy of it because we need to get the word out on this one. What distinction should we make in our prayers when praying for spiritual blessings necessary for our salvation, we should ask unconditionally. When praying for other gifts, we should ask that God grant them to us if it be his will. You better be careful about marching into the presence of God to order him to do certain things or to give you certain gifts. And this is what Luther is talking about. Uh, we don't know what's good gifts for us. Jesus illustrates that as he goes on in teaching here in Luke. Our Heavenly Father knows the good gifts, and we want what is according to his will. And that's important for us to remember. How should we pray? We should pray in the name of Jesus. That is, with faith in him as our Redeemer. I go to these Kiwanis clubs and some guy whispers in my ear, don't pray in the name of Jesus, the Jews here. Well, so what? If a Jew's there, let a Jew pray how he can pray. But I can't get to God any other way and there's no use trying. And I'm not going to pray any other way except in the name of Jesus. And I don't care if it's before the Knesset in Jerusalem or the United Nations, or the Congress, or any place else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved, unless you've dreamed up one. There's no other way. I'm not going to erase what Jesus said and said, Oh, Jesus, you shouldn't say this. Don't you know that the National Association for the Advancement of Christian Jews is going to be mad about this? Well, they may be. But this is what the book teaches. And I'm not going against the book. All right, 
We are to pray in the name of Jesus because he is our Redeemer. And we are to pray with confidence, that is, with firm trust that for Jesus' sake our prayer will be answered. Does God really answer every proper prayer, says Martin Luther? God answers every proper prayer, but in his own way and at his own time. Isn't that interesting? In his own way and in his own time. And he cites scriptures under each one of these that are remarkable. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? I sought the Lord thrice that this thorn might be removed from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And you remember our Lord Jesus said, mine hour is not yet come. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Isaiah 54, verse 7 and 8. What prayers has God not promised to answer? God has not promised to answer prayers which are not offered in faith with confidence. And James, in his own blunt way, says, Let him ask in faith nothing wavereth, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. What else should we not ask? We should not ask, which is, we should not ask for foolish and hurtful things. And then Luther cites the biblical narrative of the mother of Zebedee's children coming to Jesus saying, Lord, grant that my sons may sit the one on your right and the one on your left in your kingdom. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't answer some of your prayers the way you wanted them answered? When you get to heaven, you'll find out that the best answer he could have given was his wise refusal of what you wanted. I can think of a girl back in Paris, Texas that reminds me of this. Uh, uh, so remember this. Be grateful. I remember one time I was in Edinburgh, and uh, I was going to seminary, and all seminary students are absent-minded, and uh, I was running to catch a number 42 bus. And those guys that drove those double-decker buses if you weren't right there at that bus stop, they pulled out. And man, I was huffing and puffing as fast as I could go to get there, and he pulled out, and he looked in his side mirror, and I guess he could tell I was a dumb American from my dress, so he stopped and let me get on the bus, and I chunked my money in the thing and went back and sat down with my heart pumping, and then looked, and I was going the wrong way on the, <laughs> on the bus. I thought this was the kindest bus driver. <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't a kindness to me uh, like I thought it was going to be. The Lord answers uh, prayers in his own way, and he answers them for that which is best for us, and we need to keep that in mind. So he has not promised to uh, answer prayers which are not offered in faith. He's not going to answer foolish and hurtful things. And he is not going to answer prayers which prescribe to God the time when he should help and the manner in which he should help. And now let me tell you this one, and then I'll quit reading Luther. Uh, Luther puts to his little children this, why do Christians sometimes feel that their proper prayers are not answered? Now maybe you've been praying for someone who's terribly sick. Maybe you've been praying for someone 
uh, who is bound up in sin and whose family is in terrible trouble, and you just don't see any reason why God has not answered that prayer the way you prayed for it. This happens to all of us from time to time when we get despondent. Christians sometimes feel that their proper prayers are not answered because in the hour of trial, they cannot see clearly the helping hand of God. And then he cites Psalm 42, which would be a good one to go home and to read. I can't help but get this one in. For whom should we pray? We should pray for ourselves and for all other people, even our enemies, but not for the souls of the dead. <laughs> Luther started the Reformation. And <laughs> uh, now then, these are some things that I wanted to show, and then quickly I can get, maybe hit one point. Uh, this is only 38 words in this Luke version. The doxology, which is given at the end of it, uh, was, we believe, added later by the church and taken from the Old Testament, from Holy, 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 from Isaiah, from Second Samuel. It's good doxology, and nothing wrong with it, but it's not a part of the best manuscript. Uh, uh, but these words right here, maybe it's incomplete so that we are to keep on working on it. These are, uh, this is a model for us to go by, uh, but he's left some more for us to do, and we want to be watching it. It's brief, it's simple, it's plural. He does not pray, my father, but our father. Remember that sometimes if we said, my father, I don't want you to let it rain this afternoon because I want to go on a picnic. There might be someone down the road whose crops are burning up and he's saying, my father, I wish you would send us a rain today because we need it. So pray to our father. There are other people in the family and they have needs too. And uh, they need to be uh, kept in mind. It's intensely personal. We've said he refers to God in this intensely personal way. And he confesses personal needs. It's embarrassing to have to admit you're broke. It's embarrassing to have to admit you don't even have daily bread. It's embarrassing to have to admit that you're tempted. It's embarrassing to have to pray for the forgiveness of your sin and then realize that if you're not willing to forgive others, then you're going to have a hard time getting your own sins forgiven because he's going to teach us that, and we'll get into it in a couple of weeks. But the first petition tells us that the first thing we are to pray for is for the coming of his kingdom. Now, if you had been writing this prayer, would you have put that first? I wonder if the theologians got together today and wrote a prayer for the church, if they would put that first. I wonder if we wouldn't get together and say, Lord, there's all those millions of people out in Cambodia that are starving. There are those 50 hostages over there in Iran. There's all this lack of leadership in the United States. There's all this trouble all over the world. We need to get the answers to these things. Well, that's just part of the picture. What we need most is to do God's will. What we need most is God's reign in the minds and hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We need that more than we need our daily bread. We need that more than we need protection from danger. We need that more than we need all these other things. Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we shouldn't walk up to Jesus and say, Look, now I can make this a better prayer. You don't understand. We've got all these needs. 
He knows what our needs are, and he knows what needs should come first. And that need which we think is so spiritual when we talk about the coming of his kingdom and the work of salvation and regeneration in the minds and hearts of men, that's a very practical need. Let me close by telling you just two little brief stories about this. Some of you have traveled to Hong Kong. And if you've ever been in Hong Kong, you know that there's a great hotel, a Peninsula Hotel, uh, one of the big hotels of the Far East where people love to go and uh, come in and, and uh, take tea. No one can afford to stay in it. But uh, they love to come there because the grand old hotel that it has been and has been down through the years. Right at the beginning of World War II, late in December of 1941, there was a big Christmas ball given in the Peninsula Hotel. And Morrison, one of the historians of World War II, tells of a wonderful, bright, young British naval officer who was a skipper of a sleek cruiser who was there at that ball. It's after Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And here, this beautiful, gorgeous ballroom with all the lovely flowers and decorations and these crisp, white, starched British uniforms and their gold braids and tables laden with food. Band, the orchestra playing. And yet he's got a sick feeling inside because he has some sense of history. And he knows that it's just going to be a matter of time. In fact, it's only a matter of just a few days till Hong Kong will fall, until all hell will break loose all over the world and is already at loose. So you might think that it's great to have these things that you see, but there are needs more basic and bigger than that if you're looking at history on the big scale. Or a little boy in an amusement park going down to Carowinds is separated from his mother and father and he can't find them any place and he starts to cry and some attendant says, come here, we got a little place where we take uh, young people that get lost and it's probably not your fault anyway. They lost you, you didn't lose them. Uh, you come on in here and we'll give you an ice cream comb. It's very nutritious. You eat just the ice cream and here's some toys that we got specially for you and you play with these toys and then your mother and father will come back and get you. Well, a little kid can lick the ice cream cone and he can play with the toys, but down inside there's a sick feeling that's not going to be cured until his father comes in there and he sees him and grabs him and says, Daddy, and he's got hold of him. Then he feels secure again. Jesus knows that all these things that we pray about are important. We're going to begin dealing with them next week. But basic to all of our needs is our need to get right with God and to be in a right relationship with him. Peter Taylor Forsyth has something which I've printed in the bulletin, and I hope you'll read it again and again. The worst sin is prayerlessness. Overt sin, crime, are the glaring inconsistencies which often surprise us in Christian people, are the effect of prayerlessness, or they are a punishment. 
not to want to pray then is the sin behind all other sins. And it ends in not being able to pray. That is its punishment. Spiritual dumbness, or at least speechlessness and starvation. So, if we haven't been praying, we need to go back in simple conversation with the Father and ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Let's bow in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, all over the world today, there are thoughtful people who have a queasy feeling down inside that things are not right in the world. The only answer to this is your sovereign rule over our minds and hearts and lives. We can have no peace until our hearts are at peace with you. So we pray you, help us to hallow your name. Let us be submissive to the coming of your kingdom, and by that we mean, Lord, that we submit to you as our king and ask you to reign and to rule over us. And we want your will, not our will, in our lives. If there is any person here who has not known the joy of that first and primary relationship with thee, help that one to know today that our Lord Jesus has promised him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, and that he will open and receive the one who knocks at his door this day. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide be and abide with us all now and forevermore.